The following material is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. You can find out more about the Institute's work by visiting www.ezrainstitute.ca. Well, good morning to you all, and thank you so much uh, for having me. And I just want to re- reiterate uh, what Blaine said uh, to Pastor OJ and the team here of how uh, thankful we are for your hospitality, for having us, and for hosting us over this weekend. Uh, Before we uh, begin, why don't we just uh, pray together? Our Lord and our God, we give you thanks and praise for our salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. And so now let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, I do want to bring you greetings from Westminster Chapel in Toronto, where I'm the uh, founding pastor, and it's such a blessing for me to be with you uh, this morning, to be able to worship with you and have a chance to share with you. Now, at Westminster, we do something when we read God's Word together, and I thought I might presume upon you this morning and uh, ask you to do that with me. So for those of you who are able, and only if you are able, why don't we stand for the reading of God's word uh, together? We stand to sing, so why not stand to hear God's word read? I'm going to read to us from Mark chapter 3, Mark chapter 3, and from verse 7 to the end of the chapter. If you start getting faint or weary while I'm reading, just sit down, okay? Mark chapter 3, verse 7 through to the end of the chapter. Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea, and a large crowd followed from Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Edomia, beyond the Jordan, and around Tyre and Sidon. The large crowd came to him because they heard about everything he was doing. Then he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him so the crowd would not crush him. Since he had healed many... All who had diseases were pressing toward him to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they possess, those possessed fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he would strongly warn them not to make him known. Then he went up uh, the mountain and summoned those he wanted, and they came to him. He also appointed twelve, named them apostles to be with him, to send them out to preach, and to have authority to drive out demons. He appointed the twelve. To Simon he gave the name Peter, and to James, the son of Zebedee, and to his brother John, he gave the name Boenerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, and Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot who also betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they were not even able to eat. When his family heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said, he's out of his mind. The scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebul in him, and he drives out demons by the ruler of demons. So he summoned them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, 
that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan rebels against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is finished. On the other hand, no one can enter a strong man's house and rob his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he will rob his house. I assure you, people will be forgiven all sins and whatever blasphemies they blaspheme. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Then his mother and his brothers came and standing outside they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him and told him, look, your mother, your brothers, and your sisters are outside asking for you. He replied to them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those sitting in a circle around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Sometimes it's good for us to hear the gospel read. And uh, just note behind me uh, the uh, questions. If you've got questions about anything that I say this morning, we're going to have a short period of Q&A after the message, and I will do my best to answer those. You just have to send your email there. The gospels tell us the story, the account, they reveal to us the kingship and the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And Mark's gospel in particular focuses on the kingship and the kingdom of Jesus Christ as it's unveiled gradually to us. It reveals us the one, the Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And the early signs of the kingdom here in the early part of Matthew's gospel are just being, beginning to be seen. Just before the, the passage that I've read this morning, a man with a paralyzed hand is healed uh, by the Lord Jesus. And Christ is identified by Mark, in Mark's gospel, actually by Peter, as the Holy One of God who claimed all of life, And who claimed all of creation for God and for God's service. That's what he was here to do. He's claiming all of creation, all of life for God and his service. And yet, as we see in this passage this morning, his followers, his family, and especially the Pharisees and the scribes, the teachers, in that sense the The church of that era, who were supposed to know better, are slow to recognize who is amongst them. And this fact comes out especially when we see the hardness of people's hearts, the blindness of people's hearts because of sin. So that when the grace of God is being manifest in Jesus Christ, people don't recognize it. They don't see it. They don't recognize it for what it, for what it is. And as a result, they become prisoners, we see here in this text, prisoners of the enemy. But Christ comes, we see it throughout his ministry, to set life free. Amen. He has the power to set life free. 
in every part, in every facet, in every aspect of life. He's restoring in his ministry what we in cultural apologetics say is the normativity of creation. He's restoring God's original creation purpose. That's what his signs are pointing to throughout the Gospels. Now, it would be easy when you read a passage like this to judge the dullness and the stupidity, it seems, of the crowds, of Jesus' friends, of his followers, and of the teachers of the era. But it's important to remind ourselves that what they were witnessing that was unfolding then in history had never been seen before like this. Nothing like this had been seen before. They were witnessing something truly astounding. Now, if you've never witnessed anything before, it's difficult to understand it. If you've never seen anything like that before, it's hard to grasp its significance. We look back and we read Mark's gospel as believers, and by the enlightening of the Holy Spirit we see with the fullness of understanding all of Scripture and recognize Jesus is the Son of God. We see that as we look back. We see him as the creator, and we should see him as the root of all things, the one who holds all things together by the word of his power, Scripture says, in whom all things consist. But Mark's very rapid account, which brings the Apostle Peter's experience of the Lord Jesus alive to us, because Peter is the authority behind Mark's gospel, brings into a kind of vivid encounter the unfolding reality of the kingdom of God as it was first seen. As the truth, the embodiment of truth, Jesus Christ, is externalized as he's made manifest in history. See, because the truth in Jesus is not simply that he tells us some truths or that he offers us a discreet new bit of information here and there. He is the truth. He's the ground of truth. He's the source of all truth. He is the truth. So how would you understand, how could you possibly begin to understand a person like that? The kingdom of God that was unfolding was much bigger than the synagogue, the temple. It's bigger than the church institute today, even though it's manifest in local churches like this one. So the friends and the family of Jesus, including his mother, did not really understand what they were seeing. They didn't fully grasp the identity of the Lord Jesus That he was the Holy One, the Son of Man, fully God and fully man. And I want to emphasize to you this morning the importance of remembering the, I'm just checking the time here because I have a habit of going on, um, the full humanity of Jesus. That he was the Son of Man as well as the Son of God, the full humanity of Jesus Christ. And the thrill of actually reading the Gospels, is that you encounter this man for who he really is. And when you look at Christ, full of the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, 
You see one who is wholly in the service of his father. And because of that, he's unrecognizable. Because there had never before been a human being who lived fully and consistently in the service of God the Father. Remember the bemusement of the disciples in the next chapter, in chapter 4, verse 41, when they question among themselves, who can this be that even the wind and the waves obey him? Because here the creator was walking in his creation. Jesus' friends actually look at what he's doing, look at his ministry, and they think he's mad. He's beside himself. They think he's lost it, basically. Because to sinful human beings, a spirit-driven life wholly directed to the service of God looks like madness. It looks a bit odd. For the Pharisees who were blind to the kingdom of God, they thought Jesus must be possessed of the devil. And their sin was satanic because it looked at the work of the Holy Spirit and attributed attributed it to Satan himself. So let's think for a moment about this Christian gospel, the attraction of this kingdom that Jesus Christ came to proclaim. Let's think about that for a moment. Jesus is not recognized and properly acknowledged for who he is, but the crowds know there's something completely different about this human being. This Jesus culture, this kingdom of God, was different. His fame had spread because of his teaching, because of his miracles. His fame had spread all over the place, not just in Israel. It had gone to uh, Galilee. It had gone to Judea and Jerusalem, of course, but it had gone to Edom, to Tyre and Sidon. And so people were thronging him. Now, that's the pull of the kingdom of God. When it's fully manifest, the kingdom of God is very attractive. It's powerful. And so people were thronging to see Jesus. And here on the shore of the Sea of Capernaum, the crowd is so great, the sick are all pressing forward to touch him. The situation is actually dangerous. So Jesus, being thoroughly practical, said to his disciples, have a small boat ready. So that if the crowd is going to crush us, we can just get on the boat and push out slightly from the shore. This is the practical wisdom of the Son of God. He didn't float above the crowd. He said, have a boat ready. He's a man. He's a human being. And the demons, the unclean spirits were crying out and saying, you are the Son of God. He realized, they realized that he was a manifestation of the grace of God. But notice he orders the demons not to make him known. And that is because it's the Holy Spirit who reveals Christ, not unclean spirits. It's not that which is unclean which manifests the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ. It's the Holy Spirit. And this is the implicit unfolding of the identity of Jesus. That is not going to be declared by demons. And so in his humanity and practical wisdom, he has this boat on hand. Everything that he is doing is geared to service, service to God in creation. 
And he didn't shut the unclean spirits up because he didn't want people to know who he was. It was he, he rejoiced in the hunger and thirst of the crowd to know his identity. But it was because he had come to redeem all of life and to, and to be king over all of life. And that means people. And that kingdom was to be declared in the power of the Holy Spirit. That was the attraction of the kingdom. Well, the king then, showing forth the works of the kingdom begins to call people to himself. And he goes up on the mountain, the text shows us, and he calls those who he has chosen to special service. You see, the Lord Jesus knew that an individual, particular contact is necessary with a smaller group of people, not just a vast crowd, through whom he was going to start winning the world back to the Father. The transformation of life was to begin on the inside of these people and work its way out into every aspect of their lives. And there's two parts to the calling which he gives them. If you look at verse 14, if you've got your Bible open or you're looking at your phone, that they might be with him was the first aspect of the calling. To be with Jesus, he called them, and that he might send them out. So the first part of their calling is that they might be with him and that he might send them out. And this calling then that they received, these early believers, was a calling to an office. A calling to a responsibility, a calling to a particular authority, a calling to a kind of accountability. So they were being called to a special office to occupy a position of authority and responsibility to fulfill God's calling. Now, we can't serve Christ as we should unless we've been with Christ. So the first part of the call is to be with Jesus, that is to be in fellowship in communion with God through Christ, and then to be sent out to serve him. Remember in the book of Acts, the the Pharisees look at the apostles and it says that they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Because they taught with authority, yet they were unschooled. They were unlettered. The Christian life of service to God always involves these inseparable elements of being in fellowship with Christ, of being with Jesus, and being sent out by him. You can't have the one without the other. And you can't have one and leave the other out. If you've been with Jesus and you're in fellowship with him, you are being sent out by him. You have been called by him. Now, there must have been many who were called by the Lord, not just the 12, who spent unforgettable time with the Lord Jesus in, which these, in these days in which the kingdom was dawning upon them. What a privilege that must have been to be there, to see the work of the king in the unfolding of his kingdom. And yet here today, we are actually as privileged as they were insofar as Christ is speaking to us in his word. It's as though we were with him on the mountain when we hear God's word speak afresh. Sunday by Sunday, day by day in our lives. Your one Christian theologian has put it this way. He says, when we hear the word, it becomes just as intimate for us as it was for those people among the hills of Galilee. Then we belong to the people for whom he came 
and to whom he gave his word. Now the Lord Jesus knew that as one man, even as the Son of God, he couldn't be everywhere. He couldn't speak to all the people. He couldn't heal everyone. He couldn't deliver all the oppressed. No, the kingdom of God, he was there to birth a new community of faith, a new culture. Not a gospel simply for the church institution, but of the kingdom of God, the organic church, which is his people called out in every aspect of their lives, in every vocation in life. And so he appointed the 12 as apostles to proclaim this gospel of the kingdom. And don't forget, that was before a church institution ever existed. It's before local assemblies of gatherings of elders and deacons had assembled and been appointed. The gospel was being proclaimed. And so this 12 were daily with him. They were learning and witnessing the reality of the kingdom. And they were to be foundational to this new humanity, this new people. That God was calling out in Christ, in the last Adam, Jesus Christ. And they were to be gathered from all the nations of the world. And when he sends them out, you'll notice he gives them power and authority. They're sent with power and authority to undermine the kingdom of darkness. Now I want to pause at this point to just consider with you the implications of this calling to service, and this foundation of the new humanity in Jesus Christ. It has relevance to our understanding the parable at the end of this passage in verses 23 through 27. Let's think about the meaning for a moment of to be, the meaning of being called to an office as a Christian. Mark's been highlighting that Christ comes as a redemptive king to restore and call us back to something. So when you think about the words that are used for redemption and salvation in the Bible, it's redemption, restoration, renewal. So it's all about a recovery, a restoration of something. What is being restored? Well, of course, to restore something, to renew something, to recreate something, presupposes that something's been lost, something's been rejected. That needs to be recovered and received. And actually the Apostle Paul makes this explicit with respect to our status as God's image bearers. As we were created to be. As God's image bearers. This is what Paul says to us in Romans 8, 29 through 30. He says, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So what Paul is talking about here is the Christian calling speaks of the Christian calling as the restoration of the image of God in Jesus Christ. That's what's happening. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. It's a new creation. So there is a restoration of 
the fullness of the image of God in Jesus Christ. And this Christ, we're told, he's conforming us. God is conforming us in Christ to Christ's image. So that Christ will be the first among many brothers and sisters. The twelve were the first. They were foundational to this new humanity. But in 1 Corinthians 15, 49, Paul assures us, he says, Just as we have borne the image of the man made of dust, we will also bear the image of the heavenly man. And who is that heavenly man? Well, Paul tells us it is in Christ of whom Paul says, He is the image of the invisible God. That's who the heavenly man is. He's the image, the image bearer of the invisible God. And we are therefore, according to Paul in Colossians 3.10, he says, quote, being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. So we are being called in Christ to be conformed to the image of the Son, who is the image of God, and we are being renewed in our understanding according to that image of our Creator. That's what's happening to a believer. This is what was happening to those first disciples when they were with him, and he sent them out with authority. Now, this is very important. Human beings don't simply have the divine image is something that's added on. It's not a choice to be an image bearer as a human being. Being an image bearer of something represents what it means to be human. It represents our very makeup. And at the same time, our whole calling in God's world is represented by being an image bearer. This is why Genesis is so important, that we were made in the image and likeness of God. In every aspect of being, our being human, as human beings, that is, in our humanness, in our humanity, we are imaging God or our idea of the divine. That's what we're imaging. It's what we're reflecting. And this is going to be done faithfully in terms of the image of Christ, or it will be done in a distorted way with an apostate, rebellious heart. Something else will be imaged. Now, Jesus Christ is the truly obedient son. He's the true Israelite. He's the truly obedient son, the last Adam who represented that image perfectly as fully man and as the first of many that he now calls his people a new nation, a new kingdom. He is the office bearer par excellence. Now, when we think about being the image of God, and when you think about what it means to be the image of God, we're not talking about human beings being some sort of finite copy of God. Okay, we shouldn't think of it as which bit of me, which bit of my makeup, perhaps my immortal soul, as the Greek philosophers talked about, images God? That would be a misunderstanding of what we're talking about. There is a, the Bible gives us a very important distinction, the distinction between creator and creature. 
We're not God duplicates in that sense. Rather, we are made and called as creatures to mirror, to echo, to reflect the will and purpose of God together in the world, to creation. That's what it means to image God. Everything about us, everything about the human person, says something important about God and his will and purpose. Everything about you. Jesus as fully man and fully God in his incarnate humanity shows us what that imaging God is really like. He became like us, the scripture says, in all things to do the will of the Father. And by his spirit, he gives the true kingdom perspective of what it means to be faithful images of God. And that embraces the entirety, the totality of your selfhood in all of its functions. It's not just that your mind is meant to image God's will and purpose. It's not just that your intellect or maybe your moral nature, but the totality of your being, which is unified in what the Bible calls the heart, the center of the human person. Now, the origin of this Imago Dei, image of God language, derives from the idea of ancient coinage. You may have heard this before, where coins were stamped with the image of the ruling monarch. So a coin had the image of the king or emperor or ruler stamped in it. And what that represented was the presence, the authority, and the concerns of the king or of the emperor. Still, our coinage today has the image of who on it? Queen Elizabeth, right. The image, the royal image. So there's the, the, it bears the image and represents something of, it's supposed to, crown authority, presence, and the concerns of the Canadian dominion. Now, wherever we are in God's creation, what this is telling us is that we are meant to represent the presence, the care, the authority and the sovereignty of the king, because we bear his image. To be God's image bearer is to be his ambassador, to promote what he promotes, to promote the kingdom of God, the culture of Jesus Christ. Now, there's a side note that's significant in this. God alone has the prerogative of making an image of himself. God alone has the prerogative of making an image bearer of himself. This is why human beings are uniquely God's image bearers in righteousness, holiness, and dominion. God alone makes an image of himself. And that is why the second commandment forgives us, forbids us making images of God. You should not make for yourself an idol. God has done that already. God's already made an image of himself, which is why you're not permitted to make another one. You are the image of God. And as one Christian thinker has pointed out, he says, and I quote, every attempt to play God by imaging him in any other way than he is willed must be adamantly resisted. 
For he is filled with holy jealousy over his image-making project and frowns on every attempt to arbitrarily control or manipulate his presence, his rule, his purposes in the world. And isn't that what our culture is doing today, you see? Our culture, in its attack on humanity, in its attack on human sexuality, in its attack on human identity, in its attack on marriage and family, it's an attack on God's image bearer, which is an attack on God himself. And in so doing, what man is doing is making an idol. It's an act of extreme self-alienation because by trying to remodel human beings, he's constructing, modern man is constructing his own image of the divine. So what's going on in our culture is idolatry. You see, when we are in communion with God, we are the image bearers of God in ourselves. You are. When that communion is broken, fallen humanity attempts to find an image by artificially devising a new kind of divinity concept, a new divine presence. And that's what our culture is doing. Pretty much any religious idea or spirituality is perfectly acceptable today and will command interest and respect at the local gym unless you mention King Jesus. The image of God, you see, is a relational reality with a functional meaning. So don't think, as I say, of the image of God as, well, is my immortal soul the bit of me that images God? No, Rather, we were created in God's image to carry out a mission and a calling. So the image of God in you is a directional idea. It's a directional idea. It's about the direction of the totality of your life and mine. We're not divine. We are not God. But we are sacred because all of life is sacred. It is to be lived before the face of God in this age. Everything is to be devoted to God. That's what that means. And so the image of God coincides with the call to obedience and kingdom service, to do the will of God, which is why it was said of the Lord Jesus, I delight to do your will, O Lord. To reject God and his kingdom purpose then is actually to pursue idolatry. All of your life and all of my life is religion. And true religion is service to the kingdom of God. Every aspect. All of this means that the call to follow Christ is a calling to be renewed in service so that from using our God-imaging powers in distorted and corrupted ways, as our culture is doing, we're enabled by grace, by the transformation of our inner being, our hearts, to live and function as we were created to function. So not to serve God, not to serve Christ and his kingdom is implicitly to be an idol maker by serving another purpose and imaging an idol. And that makes us prisoners of the first great idol maker who denied we were made to image God in all things. He said, has God really said? You will not surely die you will be as God. 
You will be as God. You can define for yourself good and evil, right from wrong, truth from falsehood. You don't need to image God. You're not an image bearer of God. Make your own idol. That makes us prisoners of the one who set this in motion. And so it's from his power that Christ sets us free when he calls us to serve him. He did not call the apostles to escape the world, to flee the world, to exit the world, but to image God in the world, in their humanity, by their service to the kingdom of God. So the calling of the apostles then in verses 13 through 19 isn't just a list of names of a few buddies of Jesus who thought, oh, these are my favorites. I'll have them hang out with me for three years. No, this calling presupposes that God's people, that we are image bearers and office bearers, and we image God in the way we carry out that office. And that's what the Bible tells us we are. Remember, Christ is our prophet, priest, and king, and the scripture says that we are a royal, a kingly priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Christ, when he calls these disciples, exercises his kingly office and he shares what he has received from the Father with them as he shares it with you. And he restores you and I in this calling to our threefold office as prophets, priests, and kings in bearing God's image to all of creation as we serve God and others. We steward, there was a great Dutch Uh, theologian and prime minister. His name was Abraham Kuyper. He said, we are called to steward all the riches of the cosmos. To steward all the riches of the cosmos. We are the administrators of the world in Jesus Christ. Our office as sent ones then is not just a function. It's our personal and our communal identity as a people that we are image bearers and office bearers. And we have various different vocations. Of course, we're not called, none of you are called to founding apostleship or even necessarily to a clerical office in the church institution. But we are all called and sent to serve, to guard, to steward. We stand under God and over his creation to bring all things back to righteousness. To righteousness. Now, to do that requires authority. You can't do that on your own authority, can you? What utter presumption. Even saying it out loud sounds arrogant. So we can't do this on our authority. This is why we read in verse 15 that he sent them out with authority, to have authority even over the realm of the demonic. We're all given a delegated authority. All of you have some delegated authority as parents, as homemakers, in your studies, in your business, in your vocation, whatever it may be. Our office is a trust from God, and our authority is valid only as we stand under Christ and his authority. Remember what he said at the end of Matthew when he sends out the disciples finally and sends out his people. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me. Therefore, 
you go. And disciple, teach all of the ethnoi, all the nations to obey the gospel, to obey everything I have commanded you. And he sends us out with that jurisdiction. Now, our jurisdictions are limited by God and by the jurisdiction of various other offices. So our office is not for self-promotion, self-aggrandizement. It's for service. And they were sent out then to free life. We're not sent out to crush others. We're sent out to free life from all its bondage to the corruption and distortion and misery of sin. You're getting a grasp on your calling yet? On your image-bearing responsibility? With all the diversity of gifts that exist even in this sanctuary this morning, we're sent out to plunder the kingdom of darkness. Now let me wrap this up. Look at the resistance and bemusement that follows in the text. Jesus after doing these miracles, calling his disciples, he returns to his hometown. And he enters a house near his home. And they're so busy with the kingdom work that they don't even get time to eat. This is what the text tells us. They didn't have time to eat. Verse 20. The Holy Spirit is urging the work on in Jesus' life. His family and friends don't understand what they're seeing. So they think Jesus is some kind of extremist. That's what they think. He must be out of his mind. What's the point of it? That's what they're asking themselves. If you commit yourself truly to Christ and to his service, there will be people who think that you are mad, that you're an extremist. You know, there's new uh, policy coming out in Britain at the moment. British values, it's all called bearing no relationship to what British values actually are. These are the new values that are being imposed upon the country. And anti-extremism laws, which they're using to basically persecute Christians. That if you think that that human beings are God's image bearers, and think that marriage is marriage, and men are men, and male and female are male and female, you're an extremist. They thought he was extreme. This is what happens when you commit yourself solely to the service of God. They looked at him and they, didn't, they, he, they saw that he wasn't allowing the people to make him king. He wasn't leading in a rebellion. And yet he wasn't staying hidden. So what was the point of it all? They couldn't make sense of this movement. Because this movement was in Christ from the Father to the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit. They could not understand what was being unleashed in history in this man. It didn't resemble other movements, and so his family and his friends thought that it was abnormal, it was bizarre, and they tried to restrain him. You think about that. They tried to restrain Jesus. How many of us have tried to restrain our friends or family from their devotion to God, lest they be thought a little bit peculiar, a little bit extreme, a little bit over the top? Yeah, do the church thing, that's fine. You do church, I play golf, I feng shui my apartment, you do church, whatever works. But don't get too extreme about it. I mean, don't talk about this kingdom of God and service of the king and all. That's a bit extreme. It's a bit weird. In order to do what he is doing, which is plundering the house of darkness, Satan's house, of its vessels, 
Christ had to conquer the strong man. And that meant looking a little bit peculiar. And if we don't understand the meaning of the gospel, it does seem senseless. At any rate, Jesus' friends, his family, they didn't trust him anymore. They wanted to restrain him. The religious authorities came down from Jerusalem to keep an eye on him. They couldn't deny his miracles. They'd been face to face with the grace of God that sets life free. The religious authorities needed a counter argument and they needed it quickly because all the people were following him. So what could they say? How could they refute him? How could they secure themselves and their position against the revelation of God in Christ? which was a calling to render all of life in total service to the renewal of all things. Well, their solution was to slander that revelation and to credit the work of Christ to the devil himself. He has Beelzebul, and by the ruler of demons, he casts out demons. That's what they said. Well, think about the patience of the Son of God here. Think about the long-suffering and the patience He takes time to refute that lie with a parable. And he essentially says, if the devil opposes the devil, how can his kingdom stand? Such a kingdom is going to fall. It would have been destroyed long ago. Because there are only two principles operative in the world. And they are that of grace and of rebellion. That's it. The way of grace and the way of rebellion. Of righteousness and unrighteousness, of service to God or service to idols. The kingdom works that Christ is doing is healing and deliverance. They show that he's overpowering the kingdom of darkness. The Pharisees weren't doing these works. He's stronger than the kingdom of darkness. And he's plundering Satan's house of all its vessels. And to do that, he says, you have to tie up the strong man first. You have to overpower him. Which is what Christ has done. And it's this Because of this, that Christ is able to snatch people from his power and send out his people with authority to do the same, the authority which you and I carry. And in verses 28 through 30, Christ essentially pronounces his woe on their denial of his identity as it was being revealed by the Spirit. And it was blasphemy. They looked at the work of God, the work of the Holy Spirit, and they said, that is satanic. Such blasphemies... All kinds of blasphemies against the Son will be forgiven, Jesus says. And we hear the Lord's name blasphemed all of the time, don't we? Taken in vain all of the time. That will all be forgiven, the Lord says. But if the power and grace of the Holy Spirit is revealed to a person in the gospel, and they blaspheme that grace by saying it's evil, unclean, and satanic, Christ says their condemnation is sealed. When you start calling the work of the Holy Spirit hatred, evil, oppression, sickness, evil, whilst abominations are declared righteous and clean, that culture is in the grip of a depraved mind. It's very close to this kind of blasphemy. Well, the The concern of Jesus and his relatives about his kingdom movement, their inability to control the situation, to rein the Lord Jesus in, they have a last resort. What's the last resort? Tell his mum. Tell his mum. Tell his mum and brothers. Maybe they can restrain him. Go fetch them. Verse 31. 
And again, note that even at this stage, Jesus' own mother, his own brothers, did not really fully understand the reality of who he was, nor his father's kingdom business that he had to be about. And the crowds pressing in against him on every side, so his family can't reach him. And there's people sat around him, so they send a message to him. And they say, your mother and your brothers are seeking you. And the question now is, what's he going to do? Is he going to allow his family to disturb and resist the kingdom work? Now, nobody honored family relationships more than Jesus, the way he cared for his mother. Even from the cross, he's thinking about the care of his mother. And he says, John, behold your mother. In other words, look after my mom. So he honored familial relationships. But all such relationships must be sanctified in the kingdom if they're not to interfere in our lives with the coming of that kingdom. You see, it's only in the sanctifying of all your relationships to God, the surrender of all those relationships to God, that the kingdom actually comes. If we allow our friends or our colleagues or our family, even our mother and siblings, to hinder us from service to Christ, Jesus makes plain, you're not worthy of the kingdom. You can't follow me. We can use our family and our friends and their opinions as an excuse for not giving all of life to Christ and walking in obedience to him because we fear their rejection. We fear the rejection of our culture. We fear the censure of our friends, our colleagues, and so on. But only, the only way to truly see God's grace at work in your family and mine is to ensure that those relationships find their right place by sanctifying them to the Holy One, by surrendering them all to the priority of the kingdom of God. And so Jesus' answer shows, that little tap shows I'm almost done, that the tie of faith, the tie of faith in the family of God is the strongest most intimate and most abiding of every tie that we have in this life. His answer shows that. Our fellowship in this world stands in light of that communion, that we are one with one another. When we come to the Lord's table, for example, we manifest that oneness, that familial relationship in Jesus Christ. And in looking at those that sat with him, he said, who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat with him, about him, and said, here are my mother and brothers, for whoever does the will of God is my mother, my brother, my sister. Whoever does the will of God. So if we want the familial fellowship that comes by faith, and there is no communion greater than that, a fellowship that abides forever, then our first priority in life is the will of God and the kingdom of God. And his family at that time didn't understand that whoever does the will of God abides forever. They did come to understand it. His own, can you imagine your own brother, your own mother, preaching that you're the son of God? You can't fool your mum. Nobody can fool their own mother. You can't fool your own brothers. This is one of the greatest proofs of the gospel. His own family were the leaders, were many of the leaders in declaring the kingship and the lordship of Jesus Christ. 
That is the kingdom of God. You see, Christianity is not simply a matter of attending church, but about doing the will of God in all of life. And to that purpose, he called his apostles. And since doing his will is life and freedom, we are sent out in Christ's authority to plunder Satan's house and bring the life and freedom of the gospel. A restoration which is cosmic and total in its scope. It leaves nothing out. And that reference to the appropriate place of our family exposes our tendency to reduce Christ's reign to very radically privatized, just personal proportions, whereas every aspect of Jesus' ministry and his calling to his co-workers was about putting the kingdom of God on public display. We close with the words of one theologian who said this. This should put an end to whatever privatizing inclinations are left in us, Kingdom commitment settles not only questions of personal devotions, church attendance, and favorite hymns, but also questions of lifestyle, educational choices, career decisions, organizations we join, causes we support. It is a total agenda. Nothing matters but the kingdom. But because of the kingdom, everything matters. Let me say that again. Nothing matters but the kingdom. But because of the kingdom, everything matters. That's what we learn today as sent out ones, citizens of the kingdom, which defines our identity and our place in the world as God's image bearers, that we have this glorious task to plunder Satan's kingdom in the grace and authority of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man. Amen. Nathan's going to come up now. I think there's going to be a few minutes of Q&A. Hey, uh, what a great message, everybody. Let's give him a round of applause. We just deeply appreciate you being here and sharing with us. And uh, one brief housekeeping item before we get started. Um, Because of the various elements we've incorporated into the Sunday morning service, we've ran behind. So parents, if you need to pick up your children, we want to be honorable to our volunteers and all the service staff here. Uh, We're going to run for about 10 minutes, and then we'll conclude after that. Um, So one of the topics you incorporated into your message was uh, Imago Dei, right? Mm -hmm. The image of God. What would you say to Christians who are really struggling to bear that image in their secular workplaces or in their families or different places like that? Mm -hmm. Well, I think the first thing is we have to understand we have to get a full grasp on what the Imago Dei actually means and what it means to bear the image of Christ. And it depends what is the source of our struggle. There's a variety of reasons which cause us to be uh, defective in our image bearing. Some of it has to do with the fact that we've not been with Jesus enough. Remember, he called them to be with him, and then he sent them out. So if we're expecting to bear God's image in our own strength and power without actually being in fellowship and relationship with God and spending time in his word and in fellowship with other believers, we will not be effective. We won't be successful. So we have to be in Christian community, in the life of God's church, and in his word so that we get a clear understanding as we look at Christ what it means to bear his image. And then if the, if the challenge is that we're afraid, then we need courage, don't we? We need the resources of God's word and of his spirit to give us the courage to be faithful. And we need the manifesto of the kingdom of God, which is given to us in scripture, as our guide as we seek to manifest that image in our vocations and in our place of work. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, amen, amen. So one issue we struggle with here in the West is cultural Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, the question is, if Christians were to gain a very high degree of cultural influence and political power, how could we counteract the problem of cultural Christianity and help people who claim to be Christians and think they're Christians without actually knowing or obeying Christ? Mm-hmm. Well, of course, nominalism or or purely a cultural uh, identity uh, has been with us ever since the birth of the church. Uh, You know, Jesus himself says that the the wheat and the tares grow up together. So sometimes we we need to be less anxious about trying to um, separate out the detail of who's who and what's what. Sometimes we have to, we we can look at the fruit, of course, uh, in the lives of those who claim to be Christian. But uh, the, the, the question of who is in and who's out in the end is, is, is up to God. Now, I think the, um, I understand the, the force of the question, though, that you have, which is uh, how do you counter out uh, purely a nominal faith that doesn't uh, come to the reality of who Christ is? And I think that in the end, that is the, the calling of the church, the calling of God's people, um, is to uh, be an authentic a Christian community. And so the preaching of God's word, the Lord's table, church discipline are given to us so that the church of Jesus Christ bears with integrity the image of God to the culture. And of course, a nominal Christian culture is better than an anti-Christian one. <laughs> All right? So, uh, you know, we don't need everybody to be converted and born again from the prime minister down, uh, although that would be valuable, um, to... Uh, to, to, to see the seasoning impact of the gospel. Remember that the apostle Paul actually instructs uh, uh, Christians in their marriages, if they're married to an unbeliever, because they've been converted and their husband or wife isn't, he says, if they will stay with you, remain in that marriage, remain in that relationship, because it's through you that that marriage and your children are sanctified. That doesn't mean that because I'm a believer, a non-Christian spouse or children are therefore regenerate and saved, but it does mean that the influence of the covenant of the gospel of Christ impacts my family and can, by grace and by faith, bring about their conversion. And so the salt and light aspect of being a Christian in the culture um, is that even though everybody, not, not everybody's going to be converted, but the seasoning impact of God's people means that the signs of the kingdom the fruit of the kingdom can be made manifest even where not everybody professes the name of God. So the key to preserving a, uh, a true church is, of course, the church being faithful. And that will uh, mean that even where there's nominality, the grace of God is still being made manifest. And that, that's the struggle. As goes the church, so goes the world. We need to be less concerned, actually, about, well, what would the culture really look like and how could we... Actually, it's just a question of what is the church going to be and to do? Because we are the light of the world. We are a city set on a hill, Jesus said. Yeah, amen. Um, So with that question, would you say idol worship and God rejecter are synonymous terms? Mm -hmm. Yes. So as I tried to sort of make clear, whether people realize it or not, if they're not serving God, Christ, and his kingdom, they are idol makers, um, and so uh, rebellion and apostasy and idolatry are synonymous with one another. And um, we have a culture that is taking that which is created, because in the end there's only two forms of worship. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 1, there's the worship of the creator or there's the worship of something created. Uh, whether that's man-made ideas or idols of wood and stone, it doesn't matter. Uh, 
And so what we've done is what idolatry is, is taking of anything that has been created and absolutizing it, which means to put it in the place of God, to divinize it. Um, and that might be uh, human sexuality. It might be um, uh, human philosophies that are anti-God. It might be almost anything that is actually raised to the position of God. So where we, where we serve anything other than Christ, the living God, we actually bear the image of the idol that we worship. And we bear that image then to creation. And that's what's happening in our culture. The, res- the reason there's radical changes in our culture is because idolatry governs our culture. And we bear then that image to creation and on the world. And we try and remake the world after the image of the idol that we've made. So next question is, is this attack on Christianity and our culture something unique? Is this the first time it's happened throughout history? No. Um, in the early church, uh, the early Christians were called by the pagans haters of humanity because they refused to uh, follow the, the, the ways of um, uh, the pagan world. They were called atheists because they didn't worship the pagan gods. Um, and uh, we actually even see a, a radical distortion of human sexuality. In fact, in the time of Paul, the emperor Nero um, had married two men, uh, one which he related to as a, as, a, as a man and one which he related to as a woman. So, um, and pederasty was very common in the Greco-Roman world. So um, there's nothing new under the sun. However, there is a, a distinctive difference about what's happening right now and what happened then. Even in the Greco-Roman world, there was not an attempt to redefine human identity against creational biology, and there wasn't a radical attempt to redefine marriage. Even though they had all of these distorted understandings of human sexuality elsewhere, they didn't try and, uh, there wasn't a a radical attempt to destroy that basic institution, um, which is there by creation order. So that aspect of what's happening in the West right now is actually a new component, and it's due to our self-conscious and radical apostasy against the Christian gospel. The pagan world was not in a radical rejection of the Christian gospel. They hadn't heard it. The modern world is in, at this point in the West, a self-conscious rejection of this message. And therefore, it's simply trying to overturn every norm that God has established. So that is an element that is new and is satanic in its origin. But the kingdom of Christ... We're about to celebrate the resurrection, the ascension, and the session of the Lord Jesus. Christ has all rule and authority, and a way of death, a culture of death, has no future. It's only the people of God that have a future. And his transformative work that's exactly. ongoing. Yeah. Uh, one last question before we wrap up is, how can people get involved with what you're doing? How can they support what you're doing mm-hmm. and uh, become part of the process? Well, that's very kind of you to ask. So... Um, uh, Blaine mentioned the Ezra Institute, which is a, a, a cultural ap- apologetics and cultural uh, theology ministry based in Ontario, but it's a Canadian ministry for all of Canada, uh, where we are seeking to equip and to train uh, people in thinking through the implications, understanding the gospel, and then understanding the implications of the gospel for every aspect of life, from law and politics to medicine to education 
to farming, you name it, what are the implications of the gospel for the totality of life? That's what the Institute is about. And so we're working with lawyers and doctors and and people in all kinds of vocations and politics right across the country to equip and train young professionals, students, and actually people of any age who want to come and stay at our study center, our Center for Reformational Culture on the Niagara Peninsula. So um, if you visit our website, which is uh, ezrainstitute.ca, ezrainstitute.ca, you'll be seeing the, 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 uh, the center is new, so you'll be seeing announcements about that. But more importantly, you can get free stuff. So we, we publish a journal uh, three times a year called Jubilee, uh, Recovering Biblical Foundations for Our Time. And you can sign up for this, actually, at the, at the table at the back. This is free to you. So, and this gives you resources for thinking about the implications of the gospel for the totality of life. We have a publishing ministry, Ezra Press and Paideia Press. So there's all kinds of books and resources and online resources on our website that you can access. And yes, the ultimate experience with us would be uh, next year our, our center opens up for visitors and for new academies that we're launching. So you would be able to participate in those. We have some books at the, uh, on the table. Uh, there's a book called Gospel Culture, just a little book dealing with many of the themes that I dealt with this morning. And you can sign up for this, and we'll keep you informed. And of course, you can pray for us. And uh, as long as you're faithful to supporting your church, you might also consider getting behind us and supporting us as part of your plan for giving. Well, thank you very much. Let's give them one last round of applause. Thank you. Yes, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Booth, Nathan, and thank you, Blaine. Let's uh, thank them again one more time, you guys, uh, all of them. And uh, we are going to stay in touch. We're going to be using these resources. Uh, I am really convinced in my heart that they're on the right track in, address, in what they're addressing. So, so thank you. Uh, we invite you to connect at the back table or downstairs at our fellowship. God bless you. And let's go out and let's be the church 24-7 as we go out in culture this week. Amen. Thank you for listening. Feel free to share the material with friends, but do not charge for or alter it in any way without the written consent of the EICC. Thanks again.